So I was, um, I was having a conversation with Jack before I uh, came into worship, just talking about how, how neat it is to be going through Acts. Um, I was just remarking that there's so many of these stories that I think are they're rather iconic or really familiar. And uh, I think this is one of those. This is one of those that's, that's quite familiar to us. And I, I'm just really looking forward to more of these passages that we've, we've looked at before, that we've uh, maybe even committed to memory as far as the story goes. And just being able to look at it again together with the expectation of maybe not learning something new, but maybe seeing how the impact is is different, is fresh, is um, yeah something something for us to to really use. And and I know as we've been meeting as, as elders, just really praying that the Lord would lead us in a, in a fresh way to sort of look at what we're doing and how we worship, how we fellowship, how we interact with each other and maybe with some fresh eyes. So anyway, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that. Tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 1. And I know John promised that we wouldn't just be taking little snippets. So just a massive chunk of eight verses tonight. Um, being facetious, obviously. But we are um, we're going to be walking through Acts, and, and we're, we're really not in a hurry. We're not in a hurry to finish it up just to get through it, just to say we got it, to get the merit badge. You all will get the merit badge if you come to all of the services. But um, I'm joking, by the way. You, there are no badges. But um, you know, looking at some of these passages here, um, they're worth slowing down and reexamining. So tonight we're looking at verse... Uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 6 through 14, and really spending most of our time in 6 through 11. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. If you have those digital Bibles, go ahead and bleep, blop, bloop. Head on over to Acts chapter 1. We are going to go to a few different passages tonight. So, uh, But if you need to, you have the Bibles in front of you there. I did want to take a look here at verse 6. For, well, we're going to look at all these, but I wanted to start in verse 6. Look at this first phrase that we have. So when they had come together, they asked him. So we, we, could, we could kind of slow down here. Who, who is they? When they had come together, these are the disciples, right? Minus one. So we're looking at 11 disciples together with Jesus. We find out at the end of this passage there on the Mount of Olives. Said so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And this is one of those one of those phrases that we kind of tease the disciples throughout the gospels. They they bring this up. Hey, is it kingdom time yet? When are we gonna do this? I think one of the famous times is probably the transfiguration, we're like, all right, it's going down now. Jesus shows his bit of his glory. We got some reinforcements. We got Moses and Elijah. Let's do this thing. Let's 
Let's take on the Romans. Let's, let's build the kingdom. Let's do it. I think one of the other famous times is actually the feeding of the 5,000. I was just reading this with my, with my kiddos the other night. In John chapter 6, but it was after the feeding of the 5,000 out in the wilderness where those who were present said, there's something special here. And Jesus had to actually run away. Not, norm, not his normal running away. Normally he's running away because someone's trying to kill him or put him in prison or just grab him, shake him, I don't know. But this time it wasn't, wasn't put him in prison or kill him. They, they wanted to actually make him king. It says in John chapter 6 that they were going to forcibly make him king. So he had to run away. So there's always this kind of, not always, but in a lot of passages, in the back of the minds of, of a lot of people, Messiah's showing up, things are happening. Kingdom again, right? We're, we're, do, we're doing the kingdom stuff again, right? Jesus constantly says, well, in the gospel, say, hey, my time's not yet. But here we get it again. Now, I think it's important to see that the context here is different. We've had the resurrection. So they go, okay, surely now. Surely now is the time. Kingdom time now, right? And I think we read it and we go, oh, you silly disciples. Always so concerned with your kingdom again now sort of thing. You still don't get it, do you? But I think that we probably would be in the same situation that they would be in if we were here at that time on the Mount of Olives with the resurrected Christ, I think we go, okay, Jerusalem's right there. Now? Is it going to be now? Turn to uh, Matthew 28. I think there's a reason why this was so prevalent in their mindset. Matthew 28, this has just happened shortly before this event here. So looking at verse 16, chapter 28 of Matthew, and this is one of those I think is really familiar to us. We're going to look at the context a little bit deeper. I think there may be a detail here that some of us may have missed that I think is really important. But look here, verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. All right, I know we're not all cartographers, but where is Galilee? If Israel is a map like this, where's Galilee? Anyone know? Generally? Not in the middle. Up here. This is Galilee. This area here. Okay? This is Samaria. Here's Judea. All right? Remember if, where they were going up to Galilee, and they're like, we're going around Samaria, right? Remember those, they talk about that, because yeah, Samaria's in the middle, yeah, because Galilee's up top. So they're up in Galilee in Matthew 28. And I think sometimes we think this is the same time as the ascension. It's not. This is, this is a little earlier. This may have been the place, you know, where it says that Jesus showed up in his resurrection body, resurrected body, to over 500. It may have been here. This may have been that time. So they're up north in Galilee. If you look here, verse 16, to the mountain, 
to which Jesus had directed them. So they went up to a mountain in Galilee. So in that region up there, there's a couple mountains it could be. I, I intended to do a little bit more study, but there's so, either so little discussion or the discussion is pretty much, yeah, it's probably here, but maybe not. We don't know. But up in Galilee on a mountain, some pretty cool things happened. One of those things, Sermon on the Mount, could have been the same place. The other thing is if it went still in that, that type of region up there, if they went up to the Bashan, if they went up to Mount Hermon, that would have also been the Mount of Transfiguration. A lot of things happening there. Very well may have been that they were standing in one of those places where you have this pivotal moment that they'd had when Jesus was teaching. Either this great teaching place or this place of transfiguration. They met there. You notice verse 17, it says, and they worshiped him, right? So they fell down and they worshiped him. It said some doubted. Verse 18, it says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of, an, end of the age. Great place to end, Matthew. Good job. Real pivotal literal mountaintop moment for them, for them, I'm sure. Notice a couple things here, though. He says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. We'll get back to this in a second, but just recognize Jesus announces, hey, I've got all authority, heaven and earth, it's mine. Notice as well, he says here, this, these famous words go, therefore, and make disciples. Just a side note there, go's not the verb. It's as you're going. It's assumed you're going. It's not an imperative. The imperative is make disciples. Baptizing. Another thing to notice here is the threefold representation of God here in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. This was new. This was special. This, this commissioning was in the name of all, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, signifying truly what the church would be like. It would be in just what Jesus promised in John chapter 4, that there would come a time where worshipers would worship in spirit and truth, full understanding of who they are worshiping as much as we can as humans, I suppose. Right? So that happens. See, I'm with you to the end of the age. All right? Then he says, all right, meet you in Jerusalem. I'll meet you down there. So they make their way down. Peter gets antsy, starts fishing. I mean, maybe they just had to eat. I don't know. And we get that time in John. That's recorded there. But right after that, then they go to the Mount of Olives. 
You have this here. So you can understand with that kind of call, that kind of commissioning, in some significant place up in Galilee, you, you got to believe that they're saying, okay, we're going to meet you in Jerusalem, and then what? Right? What are we doing? Well, the assumption should be, if we go back to Acts, all right, we'll do it. So now the kingdom, right? Now, what kind of kingdom do you think that they were wondering about? I think it's pretty clear here. Because if you look at verse 6, he says, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Or the kingdom to Israel, I should say. Restore it. Meaning what? Bring back that that amazing kingdom that we've heard about since we were kids. We bringing that back? Moving out? And I mean, if Jesus was amazing before and they wanted to grab him and make him king just because he provided them all bread out of nothing, the resurrected Jesus easily, easily could rally the rest of the nation, right? Easily. No problem. It's not going to be a problem of recruitment. But think about this. What they're asking is, are we going to to have the kingdom like we thought we would? Because the commissioning was, you're going to go out. As you're going out, you're going to make disciples. You're going to baptize them. And then what? What do we do? If Jesus really was who he said he was, then why not just establish the kingdom here right now? Let's go. Let's do it. So I think we can probably ease up a little bit on just maybe kingdom shaming the disciples. All right? Okay, we get it, guys. We understand, And, and, and rightly so. If you had been with the resurrected Jesus, you'd probably expect great things like that, wouldn't you? Especially all the things that Jesus had promised would happen after his death, right? But you look at this and they said, okay, you're going to restore the kingdom? Jesus answered them, obviously. He says, well, he answers them by kind of not answering them. We'll get there in a second because think about this. They're saying, are we going to establish the kingdom we're going to move forward. So if in their mind they're, they're going to be going, then, then what are we going to do? We're going to go out there and we're going to announce this, and then what? They're just going to stay there? Or are they going to come in? Are, they going to, are we going to build this kingdom this way? If that was the thought, then of course Jesus is going to establish a kingdom where that can take place. See, from their own perspective, the biggest problems that they had, the oppression from the Romans and from the disciples' perspective probably, the, well, for lack of a better term, the corrupt religious leaders. So if we just, you know, fix those things, right? AKA in parentheses, you know, Jesus in a miracle and we take care of those things, then why not? Why not just move forward with that? That makes sense. Here's the problem. So we're thinking way, way, way too small. We're just going to establish a a kingdom in Israel? That's it? Now, for them, that would be amazing. So Jesus' answer is not necessarily saying no or 
Jesus is pretty nice about it. Verse 7, he says to them, It's not up uh, for you to know the times and seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. Wait a second. What did we just look at at Matthew 28? Jesus said that he had what in Matthew 28? He had all authority. So now we've got this in Acts where it says, no, but the Father has authority. So what is is going on here? And I think what you're seeing here, this is the, for lack of a better phrase, the co-regency of Jesus and the Father. We've already read the passage. We know what happens. Jesus ascends. When he ascends, we just recited it. What happens? He ascends and he what? He's seated where? The right hand of the Father. So who's on the throne? (laughs) Mumble, mumble. Yes, all those. Yes, both. The Father is on the throne. And who's at his right hand? Jesus is. So who's on the throne? The Father and the Son. They're both on the throne. It's essentially a co-regency. So what does that look like? What it seems to be here and what's established here between Matthew and between Acts as we compare them. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. But that's not everything. Jesus has authority in heaven and earth. The Father has authority seemingly beyond that in all time, in all eternity. And and when we say that, it's, it's not just because of these verses here. When you go to Revelation and you see how the throne room looks, you have the Ancient of Days seated. Who's not there in the beginning of the songs in Revelation 4 and 5? Who's not there yet? I heard someone say it, Sunday school answer. Jesus isn't there. That slain lamb hasn't arrived, right? That's why everyone weeps. We've got this thing, and it's waiting for the one who has the authority of heaven and earth to open this. Is anyone else worthy? No, because Jesus isn't there in that scene. Whether you think it's a dramatic entry, there are some who actually think that the scene that John sees in Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, he goes to the throne room, and what he sees is essentially when he's on earth with the 11, and Jesus isn't there yet. And then the ascension happens while John is there, and then Jesus shows up. It's like a continuation of this passage. Jesus shows up in heaven as the slain lamb. There are some who think that that's actually what happens right there. I don't know. Maybe. Seems pretty cool. But this idea that you have this one who has authority in heaven and earth, and then you have God the Father with all authority as well. It's actually a pretty neat thing. It's what you actually see discussed in some places in the Old Testament where you have the Lord and the Lord. You have Yahweh and then you have Yahweh. Makes a lot of sense, right? Well, that's a little bit easier for us to see. It's like, oh, we can see the different roles. We can see Jesus having humbled himself, lived the perfect life we could never live, died the death that we deserved, and then was raised to give the life that he was able to live to us you see that you have this God-man sitting, taking authority in heaven and earth, and you have the Father with other authority as well. So what Jesus says here is, it's not for me to say what the timing is. 
It's not a terrible question. He says to them, it's not for you to know times and seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. So Jesus adds another element. And it's an important one because it's where we live. This is our reality too. Verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This probably was a little bit confusing. So not the kingdom, but this. The power, the, the, the Holy Spirit coming in power, and for what? See, I think this was the confusing piece. What is this? The kingdom's not here. Jesus is, is well, he leaves in a verse or two here. He's gone. What is this? I mean, Jesus already talked about this in John 17. He said in, in his prayers, like, I have to leave. And I'm going to send another, right? This discussions that he had. So he'd already told them these things. But the pieces still don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. How can you go out and preach the gospel to every creature? How can you make disciples and then do What? And the answer is yes. That is what we do. Because we're waiting. What are we waiting for? What was discussed in Matthew 28. The going out and the, the preaching of the gospel to, to all creatures, to make disciples of all nations. So not the kingdom of Israel. What we're talking is the whole earth. Right? It's the restoration of creation. It's the restoration of humanity. It's the restoration of the nations. To culminate in this return, this, this coming of Jesus, to finally establish his kingdom. So he says wait. Right? And, and John did a great job of talking through what that means to wait. So wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for that power to come. Verse 8, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the, to all the ends of the earth. That word there for witness, I don't know why it's translated witness here, but other places it's a, a different word that we're also familiar with. It's martyr. Martyr just means witness. So there's something bigger going on. Something bigger than, okay, we'll establish a kingdom and we'll build up power because that's how you would do it. From our own human perspective, that's how you fix the wrongs. You establish a base of power and you go out from there and then you are able to conquer, to judge the oppressor. What is this? What is the criteria? Because for us, that, that's what we would normally think, oh, that's what you do, right? Matthew 6, we went over this a few weeks ago when we were finishing up our Advent series. But there's that idea of on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a longer road. Think about this. If Jesus had shown up well, Jesus was there. If Jesus hadn't left, that's a better way to say it. If Jesus hadn't left and said, okay, you convinced me, finally. We'll, we'll just establish the kingdom. 
there's a possibility that you wouldn't have the church that you see today. That church growing out from there, going outward. Jesus, in, in fact, says, it's better that I leave because then the Holy Spirit will come. Right? Do you remember that? And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read that, I say, I don't know if I really believe that. It's better that Jesus leaves? Yes. It is. The Holy Spirit will bring power. Different from how the world assesses power, the kingdom building is not through strength of arms or even, or even influence because of power in the same way that other people would build a kingdom. Jesus builds a a kingdom through gospel progress, through growing the assembly. And this is where you get that additional piece. Church just means the assembly. It's all of us who are coming together. But it's a promise for the church to live out what really Adam and his family couldn't and didn't. This is almost a, a beginning again pushing out again. It's taking Eden again out from this place, from Jerusalem and going outward again to multiply and to fill the earth, except not just through having children and not through strength and not through these different means, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus would say, those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, it's those whom God has, has called. And in fact, that is that's where we find ourselves. Some people ask, how come Jesus hasn't come back? Revelation, it says, because the number of the Gentiles has to be complete first. And that's really where we're at. This kingdom that's being built. But it's being built in a way that we probably would not have done it ourselves. But from the perspective of the Father, from the perspective of the Son on the throne, this is the best way to build a kingdom. And I think it fulfills one other promise that we'll look at here in just a second. Verse 9, he says, when he had said these things and they were looking up, he was lifted up in a cloud. I'm sorry, it says, a cloud took him out of their gaze, or out of their sight. And as they were gazing into heaven, as he went, I don't know what they were standing there looking at, expecting him to do. It says that there were two men that came by, dressed in white robes. We could do a whole study on the white robes. We won't. It's not right now. And said, men of Galilee... It's funny he called them men of Galilee. I don't know. They just came from Galilee. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking around into heaven? This Jesus that was taken up from you into heaven will come back the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what is this all about? I think in the same way that you saw Elijah go, you saw, well, we didn't see Enoch or, or Elijah go. But the way that Enoch and Elijah went to heaven without dying, without those things, Jesus does it in, a, again, a better way. This is the resurrected Jesus going into heaven. He will then go and sit at the right hand of the Father. That means that our master sits next to the Ancient of Days. We pray to Jesus. Jesus sitting right next to him. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. The Father has pretty much all the rest of it. There's no better place to have a friend like Jesus then right there, it is better that Jesus went. Jesus now from his throne is able to coordinate all these different things. And we see what that looks like in the opening letters of 
Revelation, Jesus still concerned with the church, concerned with the assembly, concerned what's going on down here. But he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell and to live and to give power. Maybe not in a way that we would have, but this is a better way. It's a longer way. It's a more difficult way. But this is a better way. Look at Psalm 110 with me. Or don't. I'm not your mama. But we're going to talk about it. Psalm 110. This whole psalm is great to read to kind of get a good perspective here. We're going to look at verse 1. The Lord, when you see all capital L-O-R-D, remember that is the covenant name for God. That is Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a a footstool. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Why is Jesus in heaven sitting next to the Father? He's there until the enemies of God are made a footstool. Do you know what that means? It means until they're conquered. There's different pictures of a conquering king and a defeated king. You'd have the defeated king laying on the ground. The conquering king would put his foot on his neck. That conquering king had all power over that king. That other king was in complete submission. So in the setup of this, what this means is, Jesus goes and is seated at the right hand of the Father, sends the Holy Spirit and power to do what? That the assembly would be involved in that act, that the enemy might be made a footstool. And how? Through clever military campaigns or expanding of a physical kingdom? No. Through the power of the Holy Spirit to go out into the world and to build a kingdom right in the midst of the enemy. Truly fulfilling Psalm 23, right? I don't think we understand our position here. I think too often we allow allow ourselves to be fooled by the enemy. Too often we think, oh, we Christians are out here suffering and being destroyed and the enemy has so much influence and so many things and, oh, all the scariness. And let's just remember that the kingdom of darkness is on defense. That the Son of God has already conquered. The Son of God has, remember, all authority on heaven and earth. It's already done. We essentially get to live as the assembly on earth as the kingdom is being built person by person, brick by brick. There's literally nothing that the enemy can do to us. What's the absolute worst thing that the enemy could do to us? What's the worst thing he could do? Kill us, and then what? Like, ooh, heaven. Like, it's not like, 
like, then we just get a reward. That's why Paul talks about, like, well, it's better if I go, but I guess if I'll stay here for you guys, it's better that I go. So what's the worst thing the enemy could do? Send us to our reward? Okay. All right. Doesn't mean that death is easy or nice or pleasant. No. But it has no effect. There's literally nothing the enemy can do to stop the gospel, to halt the forward progression of the kingdom, or to impact Jesus in any way. I mean, for us, yeah, there's trials, there's tribulation, there's difficulty. I mean, we're not going to just shine everybody on to say everything is just, I almost said pumpkins and roses. That's not it. Butterflies and roses or whatever. Whatever your two favorite things to say together that are happy things. It's not that, right? Peaches and cream. We can think of a lot of them. That's not the point. But the, the whole idea is, is that it's not easy. And sometimes I feel like we want to give the gospel in such a way to say, hey, hey, everybody, we're like, we're like carnies. Step up this way, right in here. Go in this tent right here, and then you'll have what? We'll, we'll promise what? Oh, it'll be peace. It'll be easy. It'll be nice. It'll be great. You'll have fellowship, all good stuff. There's pizza in there. There's whatever else we say. It's, but just go through these, just go through this tent here, and you'll be fine. And that's not what it is, right? I mean, there's, there's difficulty. There's hardship. In fact, if we're really doing what we're supposed to do, we make ourselves a target for the enemy, right? And some of us go, we, we might pray, Lord, please make us more like Jesus. I want to understand you better. I want to know you better. And so then the Lord allows suffering for us to do that. And we say, Lord, take away this suffering. Why are you doing this to me? It's like, I'm giving you exactly what you asked for. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to stretch you, knowing that there's zero way that we can be crushed. We cannot be destroyed. Maybe from our own perspective, we can have a pity party can't be destroyed. And so what is this? I think we've, we've flipped the expansion of the kingdom around sometimes. And we forget that we carry with us the true message of hope and glory. That the rest of the world has no idea is really that important, but we know is important. So what are we waiting for? We have our commission. We have the message. We have what we need. We just get distracted. In fact, I think that's the major tactic of the enemy where we live. Having traveled to other places, gone to Africa and seen what happens to the direct attack of the enemy, and I do think that's, that's increasing here a lot more. But for us, the easier way, and it goes back to if you've read um, the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis wrote, one of the best ways to keep us from doing what we're supposed to do is just distraction, And in that fiction that he writes, you know, a lesser demon talking to a, is his manager? I can't remember now. Yes, essentially. It's his direct report where he says, you know, the thing is you don't tempt them with these great evils, right? You don't tempt people to become serial killers or tempt them to do horrible things. And you don't, you don't tempt them that way. You tempt them with small things that just distract, right? So someone leaves their house and they're walking down the street thinking about things of God and starting to move their direction towards things of God. You don't pummel them with sin. You just say like, oh, doesn't that bread smell good? And all that, that music over there. You just distract them. If you distract them long enough, they'll just forget. They'll forget what they were thinking about and there you go. We'll keep them distracted. I don't know that tactic was meant for unbelievers, but I think it kind of works with us too. 
I think in the culture that we live in, as long as we are, pardon the expression, fat and happy, then we'll probably just shut up. We'll be fine. That's, there you go. There are a lot of us who would say, you know, I know money doesn't bring us happiness, but I think I'd like to try it. You know? I want to know for sure. But I think for us, that's our biggest distraction. Our biggest distraction is that we might encounter some suffering. Well, I think we have to kind of get over it. We're promised suffering. And while we wait, we harbor in amongst ourselves the greatest gift that could ever be given to humankind, which is a true understanding of peace, power of God, salvation, and a life worth living. We kind of just hoard it. Kind of just hang on to it. And I don't say that to make anybody feel bad. If you feel bad, that's the Holy Spirit. That's not me. I'm just saying. I don't say it to make us feel bad. But sometimes I think we forget that not all the attacks of the enemy are evil and horrible and have horns and breathe fire. Many of them are are sweet and happy and really just big distractions that keep us from fulfilling those things that we're called to do. And I think for the disciples, they would have really liked it if Jesus just marched his way right into Jerusalem, sat down on the throne and made their lives easier. Probably still would have been a cool story. That's for later. We'll get to do that one day. But for now, we're called to do what they were called to do, which is in the power of the Holy Spirit fulfill that commission. I want to go back to Acts here. Turn back with me or beep boop on your slab of glass there. Looking at verse, well, one other thing here. Verse 11, there, there's very much a tie here to the second coming, and I think we forget that. They'd already been commissioned, but, but this ascension was tied to that second advent. There's a promise there that Jesus is going to return the same way that they saw him in the clouds. It's also what Jesus said was going to happen when he was on trial. Hey, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in, in the clouds. For the one thing that, I've, that I know for sure, Jesus is no liar, so I do think that he is returning. And I don't think you can dismiss that connection to the second advent. Our commission is tied to that. Right? We, we do this until he comes. We're to be good stewards of the gospel until he returns. But looking here at verse 12, and I had to repent earlier today in looking at these, and I actually did change this, this part of my sermon based on this, but it's almost like, oh, 12 through 14 are kind of throwaway verses for this. You know, the beats up here and these verses down here, you know, whatever. I mean, all scripture is profitable, right? So looking at this, Verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. One one sort of note there, Mount of Olives. It's amazing that that is the place that Jesus left and is coming back to. 
Because that mountain there was a place where they would set up the high places. It was a place of worship of other gods there across the way. had been for, for generations. It obviously wasn't in the same way that at the time of Jesus looked different. But it is, it is interesting that that's where they came from. And they went back in. Look at this, verse 13. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Now look at this. It would be tempting for us to just skip over this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James. I'm sure he always made everybody remember son of James, not Iscariot, right? Well, why does it list all their names? If you take these opening passages in, in Acts as sort of a, almost like a restart to a lot of things that God had started in the Old Testament, this is essentially a genealogy. Not in the same way. It's not like we're going to be talking about their kids. But think of it, this list of names, this is important. These are the ones who stayed. These are the ones who stayed faithful. They were the ones who were on that mountain who saw this, this identification here. And I think we do this with the genealogies who skip over them without recognizing that the genealogy represents God's faithfulness through all these different generations. And this is setting up what the stories that are going to come out of Acts and throughout time, even some of them we don't have anymore, is that these are going to be the stories of faithful men that we should emulate, right? They're an example to us. I think we forget that. So anyway, these aren't throwaway verses. These names, this is a list of faithful men. All right, and so shame, shame on me for calling these the throwaway verses, but. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So his family did show up. Did, did turn from their thoughts about Jesus they had before. But they were all together. But just, just this verse here. All these with one accord. They were all together in this. They were the ones on the mountain. They were the ones who would receive this. When they came together, they were, they were one. Of one mind. And I think this is that weird time where they're like, okay, I'm ready to go. I just... Don't know what it's going to look like. But we're all here. This verse also has that one joke about the Honda. They had a big Honda because they were all in one accord. And I wasn't going to say it, and I did. But they were all together, and I think it's really important that they were in one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together. And the whole idea is that they had, their marching or they had their marching orders and they were ready, except they needed the Holy Spirit, so they were supposed to wait. But until that time, they were together in one accord. They, they, they had the same mind about them, that these things were serious, these things were important. And you could call this the stew time. This is the stewing time where it just was marinating and the impact. And think about it. They're just all sitting around and it's like, wow, what does that mean? Is that we're going to go? Who's, who wants to go to Samaria? Maybe they started like trying to piece it all out. It's like, okay, who, who's going to Samaria first and who's going to Judea? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the thought was, but they were, it was all marinating. I think we need that time a lot of times. When we've learned something new, we need that impact. We need it to stew for a bit. You can't, you cannot hurry a good stew. 
Otherwise, it tastes like canned soup. But a good stew marinates around, and it, the flavors mix, and it's unmistakable when that, that time has taken place. And I think for something this big, for something this important, I mean, Peter all of a sudden has to think about, I got a wife. Like, what do I do? Like, how is this going to work with family? Like, how is this... How's this going to work with, uh, you know, they just gone back to Galilee. Maybe they're like, I guess we're going to start the fishing business back up. Like, I don't, what, what, happens, what happens with all of that? So this time of thinking, I think just honest reflection about that. They were all in one accord and they were in prayer together, all of them. By the time you get to the day of Pentecost, their numbers grew from the 11 plus Jesus' family and some of the other women that were there to 120. So what happened in those days? I don't know. I think word got out, and they all wanted to be together because he said, it's all of us against the world. We've got to wait for that Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk more about that next week. Father, Lord, I pray that as we look at the example of these faithful men and women those 11 who were standing at the mountain who saw Jesus, saw Jesus ascend. Lord, had Jesus reorient their thoughts on what was going to take place. Lord, we know that they walked up that mountain with expectations of what was going to happen. Oh, we're going to get a battle plan together. We're going to take over Jerusalem. We're going to boot the Romans because in their mind there, were a, there was a subset of really important things that if these things were just taken care of, then we'll have a good life. Father, thank you that you, Lord, had a different plan. Instead of having an easy life, a life of glory, Lord, instead you allowed them to live a life of hardship, difficulty, some weirdness. We know that there was a lot of joy. We know there was peace and there was hope and there was fellowship and there was exciting things that you were doing, but it was not the easy road they thought it was going to be. Once they had the resurrected, powerful Jesus with them, all things would be easy, right? No. We know that you allowed them to know and to experience difficulties and suffering Lord, that they might be the assembly that you would call them to be. Lord, I pray the, th- the same thing for us Lord, as, as a body here at Refuge and the churches that are around us, the other assemblies, Lord, pray that we, Lord, would reorient our thoughts, our concerns, our hardships, Lord, and instead we would look to see how we could walk in this way, Lord, that your kingdom would be of this hopeful thing that we look forward to and we're excited about and we get to live together. Lord, I pray that we would not be intimidated by the enemy, by the darkness around us. Lord, I pray we wouldn't be distracted. I pray instead that we just like these disciples, when we get together, that we would be all in one accord, devoted to prayer, and we would wait on the Holy Spirit to move in us in power. The advantage that we have compared to them in this passage is that we have the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would learn to be obedient to your leading. I pray that we would be soft and pliable to be able to be moved by the Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would share when there are movings of the Spirit, Lord, that we are being 
informed, filled, that we are being, Lord, instructed by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would be those who would affirm, Lord, what you are doing in each other's lives. Lord, I, I pray that we would not be distracted by those things around us, but instead be focused on what you've called us to do. Lord, that we would be, as we are going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that for this body, pray that you would do amazing and mighty things in us, among us, and around us by your Spirit. And pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.